Hey everyone, and welcome to Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary. For all you regular listeners, you've hopefully realized by now that I am not Matthew Zachary. Well, that's because I'm Matthew Zachary. What's going on? Don't mind him, and sorry for that rude interruption. My name is Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm an oncologist from Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City, Utah, specializing in cancers of the gut. And this is a special non-hostile takeover episode of Out of Patience that we're calling Dear Cancer. Security. Relax, MZ. Stephanie Elsie and I need to take over your show today. Oh, Mark, Mark, Mark. You had me at Stephanie. For those who don't know Stephanie Elsie, she has more than two decades of patient advocacy experience and now volunteers for the Lust Garden Foundation. And Matthew, we have some really important information that needs to get out to your incredible listeners, new and old. Are you calling my listeners old? Because we're just aging gracefully. Aren't we all, MZ? Aren't we all? Well, in that case, be my guest or my host. Oh, don't go anywhere, MZ. You should definitely stick around. We totally need your weirdness to amp up the show. You know, with enough practice and hard work, one day you could have a show of your own. What? It's nice to have dreams. Now let's get started. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. All righty then. Hello, everyone. This is Matthew Zachary, not Dr. Mark Lewis, and welcome to Out of Patience. It looks like we're flipping the script on the show today, and I'm not your host, but we're going to be talking about, what are we talking about? Understanding biomarkers and the importance of knowing what is driving your cancer. So thanks for having us, MZ. You're welcome. Stephanie and I are looking forward to talking to your gracefully aging listeners about some exciting advances in cancer diagnostics. This is not a test, but it is about tests. This is not only a test, it's just not a test. Right. <laughs> That's right. As a 26-year cancer survivor, it's it's the club you never really wanted to join, but I guess we used to say once you're there, you're family. So, you know, why would listeners, whether you're joining us for the first time today or are being paid as a legacy listener because you're <laughs> on my dad's payroll, thank you for being here. And we want to make sure that you hear this information straight from the source because Mark and Stephanie have a lot to contribute and I know you're going to really enjoy what you're about to listen to. Yeah, thanks, Matt. We want to help your listeners sort of walk that tightrope, find the balancing act between hope and hype you know, to banish pessimism, but also be realistic about prognosis. And we want them to know that research is happening and we're getting closer to a cure and that there is reason to be hopeful. And we talk about in healthcare, like there's stuff that you never, ever hope to ever have to listen to. <laughs> this might be one of those shows. <laughs> I can't wait to hear that show about this one day because no one wants to be in the store shopping for cures for cancer and, and research. It's all very complicated. But, you know, Mark, you are the resident MD. You're not just the kind of doctor that saves lives on an airplane when someone shouts, is there a doctor in the house? <laughs> but uh, tell us more. Yeah, certainly. And I, I have actually done that, Matt, if that helps with my credentials. Wow. No, what I want to tell the, the listeners is um, I realize, especially at the time of first diagnosis, it is a deluge of information. So is this, if this feels too much, they can go ahead and bookmark this podcast and they can listen to it later. And if there's a caregiver listening, we've got a special section for you, too. So you need to stick around. Wait, you're telling me that caregivers matter? They do. So before we get started, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the sponsor who made this show possible so you, the listener, can get information you never expected to need to know or have. But we're here to make sure you get what you need when you need it. 
Elevation Oncology is excited to bring you this ad-free episode of Dear Cancer. We believe that every patient deserves to know what is driving the growth of their cancer and how best to treat it. To receive more information about biomarker testing, visit dearcancer.health/findout. Every patient should know what's driving their tumor. And no, it's not a Lamborghini. Mario Andretti is not behind your tumor. But if you don't ask, you're not going to know. So what does a patient need to ask for to understand what's inside their body that you never asked to be there? So, Matt, as an oncologist, I have to put my hand up and admit that one of the reasons this is so confusing is the words that doctors like me use. There are a ton of synonyms or near synonyms in cancer medicine, tumor, mass, lesion, malignancy. And interestingly, that means in Latin, that means badly born. And then one last word is neoplasm, which in Greek means new formation. But what we want to talk about today is solid tumors. So this means a a tumor, a mass that doesn't contain liquid or cysts. Usually this is what we call a carcinoma. Sometimes it can be a sarcoma. And interestingly, tumors can be benign or malignant. But if we're using that malignant word, that again is the badly born, that's cancer. And we're referring to its physical nature, its solid state. And, And the contrast here is that diseases like leukemias, those are liquid tumors. Those are in the bloodstream. Solid tumors are something that, say, a surgeon could actually feel and hopefully remove. So I think we need to break this down in lay speak, and who better to turn to than my 11-year-old daughter, Hannah? Hannah, what is a solid tumor? A solid tumor is a clump of growing cancer cells that doesn't have any liquid or air inside. Tumors are connected to many kinds of cancer, but not all cancers produce solid tumors like cancers of the blood. Thank you, Hannah. So I would like to use pancreatic cancer as an example of a solid tumor. Tumor. So again, let's go back to basics because before the pancreas goes wrong, we have to think about what it normally does. It's actually an organ that very few people think about until it malfunctions. And if you ask people on the street what the pancreas does, you're going to get all kinds of answers. Well, why don't we avoid the people on the street and go right to the source? Once again, my daughter, Hannah. The pancreas is an organ in your body that secretes hormones and fluids to help you digest your food, and it regulates your blood sugar. Thanks, Hannah. You know, when you hear the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, everything stops. And I think that's one of the things that's unique about pancreatic cancer is that everyone has that specific story or reaction. And so we're here today to try to help fill in some of those blanks, because we know when that diagnosis is given, for the most part, everybody that's in the room, you stop hearing things and it just goes either really quiet or there's a loud buzz and you just can't really process anything else. So so we're here to try to help with the processing. Yeah, I actually call it the the tinnitus of terror, the the hearing of the diagnosis and then the tuning out of everything else. And listen, I'm an oncologist. I don't have a favorite cancer, but pancreatic cancer might be my least favorite solid tumor. And here's why. It's because it has this 
deservedly difficult reputation. 85% of my patients with pancreatic cancer are not going to be cured by surgery alone. This organ lives towards the back of the abdomen. As we mentioned before, it tends to be relatively quiet, and that means we tend to find it at more advanced stages. And so what we want to do today is help patients arrive at the best possible outcome. Really, this is going to involve individualized testing. And, and one thing to realize is that we no longer talk about cancer usually as all one thing. I know people use the phrase cure for cancer. Actually, the way oncologists think about it is that we are splitting, not lumping. What that means is thinking more and more specifically, not just about what organ the cancer starts in, but what mutations are driving a given patient's cancer. Now, having said that, one interesting discovery has been the same mutation in different tumor sites. So for instance, we might actually find the same mutation causing cancer in the thyroid gland, in the lung, and in melanoma. And, and more importantly, that same mutation might be targeted with the same drug in all those different cancers. So the whole point of our discussion today, or one of them, is that through biomarker testing, we can arrive at this model of individualized care. Mark, I remember back in the day, chemotherapy, radiation, all the, all the scary boogeyman syllables for treatment were very specific to the part of your body where the cancer was. We call it geographic oncology. <laughs> yeah. Like where on the map is the pin? What state is <laughs> yeah. your cancer in, in in the United States? But today it's it's kind of the opposite. It's not about where physically in your body the tumor is. It's about what part of your genetics will work to fix it for you, regardless of where it, like you said, whether it's in your thyroid or your pancreas or any other place where there's a, thank you, Hannah, solid tumor, this one particular drug can solve for all of that at once. And earlier in the process, some of what we're doing is getting closer and closer to being able to find these biomarkers way earlier, which gives whatever kind of cancer you may have been diagnosed with, you have such a better shot. So, Mark... Speaking as a doctor, and let's pretend I'm your patient, which I think mentally I am in general anyway, because we're best friends. Do I know to ask you, hey, is there a test for me? Do I need to know in advance cancer geography? It doesn't matter anymore. These are really complicated things. Where Where's the dependency on you, my doctor, telling me there's this test for you? Yeah. So, Matt, you know, honestly, the conversation has changed. You know, I no longer walk in in a white coat and impose my will on a patient. And frankly, that never should have been the model. That's paternalism, right? That's talking down to people. What we're getting closer to is shared decision making. What that means is you are well within your rights to ask your oncologist whatever you want. But you also should not feel, and I think this is what you're driving at, you shouldn't feel the weight of responsibility that you have to know everything. And really, it can be a, a beautiful dialogue uh, between you and your doctor where you should get your questions answered. And it's not the time to be polite. Like, it's the time to ask the questions. A lot of times people will ask, what can I do for you? And so one of the things you can have people do for you is write out a list of questions. Come prepared. Yeah. Even help. though like you're scared out of your mind. Yeah, because having someone there to take notes and to help 
the patient through that process know what questions to ask and to be prepared is so important. The time I have face-to-face with my patients is so very precious. In a first visit, I usually get an hour. In subsequent appointments, I usually get 30 minutes. But the one other thing I wanted to point out is many healthcare systems now have secure messaging systems. It's almost like a confidential email where you can write questions to your doctor and expect a response in a reasonable amount of time. And I would really encourage people to think about using that app, if you will, because that allows you, if you do come up with a question later on, you're like, oh, I should have asked that. You can in in many, many practices. And I think that's an underutilized resource. So we're going to go to break. But just another reminder to the listeners, the website for this show and for all of us in our community is dearcancer.health. Yes, that's a domain, apparently. Dearcancer.health slash find out. We'll be right back. Elevation Oncology is excited to bring you this ad-free episode of Dear Cancer. We believe that every patient deserves to know what is driving the growth of their cancer and how best to treat it. To receive more information about biomarker testing, visit dearcancer.health find out. I've always had a problem with the word research. Mark mentioned that cure can mean lots of different things and the universality of words can be just misunderstood. Research means a whole lot more than it used to because it's not like just, you know, the one size fits all for this one thing. It's so different. It's broken up into tons of parts. So let's really try to modernize this additional syllable laden boogie word of research. I've got this, Daddy. So cancer research is built around four objectives to discover, detect, prevent, and treat. Studying cancer and cancer patients can help figure out ways to prevent cancer and can also lead to new tests and treatments. So at the Lusk Garden Foundation, we say that research is fundamental. And the reason for that is because the entire purpose of the Lusk Garden Foundation is to fund research. Our sole existence is to fund pancreatic cancer research. And in fact, 100% of donations go to research. And the kind of research that we're doing, you know, you hear words like cutting edge, state of the art. What does that mean? Well, for, for us, what it means is we have built these relationships with these brilliant scientists who have dedicated their lives to finding cures, to transforming pancreatic cancer into a curable disease. And because the way we work with them, we're able to let them fail. Now, as a patient, you probably don't want to hear that. Right. But what that means is we're failing forward. You know, it's it's just as informative to find out what doesn't work so we can stop putting resources down that path and focus on the things that are. You know, a lot of times people will ask, why is it taking so long? I've been donating to you for years. Well, the reason it took so long for pancreatic cancer is because when Mark Lusgarden, who Lusgarden Foundation is named for, was diagnosed in 1998, this was a man sort of like maybe not quite like Steve Jobs, but he had a lot of resources. And if there was a cure that could be bought, it would have happened. And what he and his team found was that there was nothing. There was no money going into research because there were no researchers studying it because there was no money going into research. 
And so Lust Garden Foundation, in Mark's memory, we stepped in at that time in 1998. There was maybe a dozen scientists studying it. There are hundreds of scientists studying pancreatic cancer now. And we had to go from zero, where we didn't really know much about pancreatic cancer. Well, now we're at the point we've mapped the genome. We know so much more about the biology of pancreatic cancer. And so it's like a snowball, you know, rolling downhill. Well, it took a little while to get that momentum. But now that snowball is getting really big and going really fast. And so it's extremely exciting. Right. It's also important to realize, and this is something that we no one expects patients to know in the moment, but the way that drugs get to market, it's a very different process than it used to be, but it really does involve the patients more than ever, mm -hmm. which brings me to my least favorite term in all of medicine, clinical trials. A clinical trial is when doctors test out a new treatment on real patients. The patient agrees to be a part of a study that's testing a new medicine that may help them. How the patient responds to the medicine becomes a result of the study. Clinical trials are how we make sure a medicine works before it's approved for the world to use. Well done, Hannah. I don't know who made this up. I don't know why those are the syllables. It sounds like you're not getting what you need, but it's the most important thing to really break down. Dr. Mark Lewis for the win. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> well, yeah. So I'll, I'll say again, the only way that we get better is through study. And again, no one wants to feel like they're a guinea pig, but actually sometimes, and I'm sorry to use your least favorite phrase, Matt, a clinical trial is the best option that you might have. And again, you can arrive at that conclusion through careful conversation with your oncologist. What trial really means is we are attempting, we are trying to find something better. And so many clinical trials will pair a new, and let's be honest, experimental treatment against a current standard to see which one wins out. And you know, science is constantly evolving, meaning that we routinely replace an older treatment if we find a newer one that works better. On the other hand, as Stephanie mentioned, it's actually crucial that we know what doesn't work. We call that a negative trial. And again, that's not a judgment on the patients who participated in it. It means scientists have to be honest if a drug doesn't work the way we thought it would. And unfortunately, in pancreas cancer, there are many examples of things that looked so promising and so plausible, but they had to be tested in people to know if they worked as well in the body as they appeared to work in, say, a biology diagram. And instead of thinking about it as like, oh, do I want to be a guinea pig? Do I want to be one of the pioneers, one of the people who I'm helping, maybe it's not going to help me, but I'm going to help my family down, down the line because we know genetics plays a part in this. I'm going to help the people that I love, the people that come after me. And yeah, it can be really selfless, but there can be some selfishness in there too, because as Mark was saying, you can sometimes get really great treatment because the thing is working. So Mark, let's help listeners who might be in this phase of just not even knowing these words that are happening right now in their conversation with their doctor, is going on a clinical trial giving you any less risk of going on normal medicine for that particular situation? It should not. There is a word, and again, it's going to sound like jargon at first, called equipoise. And what it actually means is that ethically speaking, 
the doctors who are enrolling you on that study, Matt, um, should not be putting your health at risk, should not be giving you knowingly inferior treatment. Now, is there a chance that this new drug is not going to work as we hope? Of course, that's, that's kind of the point of testing it. But on the other hand, not every clinical trial is placebo controlled. I think that's a common misconception. A lot of my patients say, oh, Dr. Lewis, I'm not going on that trial because I don't want a sugar pill. And I'll say to them, well, there's no sugar pill involved here. So it's important to understand what it is you're getting. It's important to understand randomization. Many clinical trials sort of operate, and they have to on scientific principles, on a coin flip which might seem unfair to the given patient, but actually is fair overall, that assigns people to one group or another. That's a very, very common design. But, but I'll, I'll say again, it's the only rational way forward. Unless we just get spectacularly lucky, which to date we seldom have, these trials are, are crucial. And Stephanie's right. You can kind of have it both ways. You can be an altruist and you can contribute to our understanding. And, and real quick trade secret, at oncology conferences, it is now, and I'm thrilled to say this, routine practice for researchers to thank patients and their families mm. when new discoveries are made. And I am it's really made my heart swell with pride and gratitude when I see that happen. But you may also be the beneficiary of a new treatment that you would not have access to any other way. Mm -hmm. uh, it, people may say, oh, Dr. Lewis, you're, you're sugarcoating that. But that's the truth, is sometimes you actually may be among the first humans on earth receiving a novel therapy if you are part of that treatment's clinical trial. So we want to think about patients as being part of the research team, uh, just like Dr. Mark said. We want them to be armed with some information, like knowing their biomarkers. So here we are again with syllables. Mm -hmm. What is a biomarker, Stephanie? So as the layperson in the room, the way I think about biomarkers are they're, it's like if you think of a cell as just a circle, like a ball, it's like a thread that hangs off the ball. And it's tied specifically to a kind of cancer. And so that can be picked up. So now our resident 12-year-old will either clarify, disagree, She'll or codify. do a better job. <laughs> Take it away, Anna. Biomarker testing is a way to look for genes, proteins, and other substances that can give information about cancer. And it's different for every person's cancer. Each person has a unique pattern of biomarkers that can help you and your doctor choose a treatment. Thank you, Hannah. So listen, there are tons of acronyms in oncology, and we do have to be careful to avoid alphabet soup. Now here on the podcast today, we are going to try to keep the abbreviations to an absolute minimum. But there are two that listeners will need to know to understand a new way that we are individualizing care in pancreatic cancer. The first acronym to know is NRG1. This is a gene that is essential to all growth in the body, all human growth and development. But that gene can be paired to another gene. It's called a fusion event. This happens quite often in tumors, actually. What's really going on here is the NRG1 gene is being fused to an overactive on switch. So now NRG1 is doing way more than it's supposed to. This, in turn, overactivates our second acronym, which is called HER3. And this can lead to pancreatic cancer. One way I think about cancer when talking to my patients is a system of checks and balances that has gotten off balance. And the NRG1 fusion 
leads to the pushing down of the HER3 gas pedal. Think about it as your car. So now the accelerator is jammed down and that is driving, literally driving cancer growth. That's why we call it a driver mutation. Now, what's interesting is NRG1 fusions are not specific, Matt, and this gets to your earlier point. They're not specific to pancreas cancer. They can actually be found in over 10 different solid tumors. They can be found in lung cancer. They can also be found in bile ducts, but they are found in pancreas cancer. And a very recent and exciting development was called the Crestone study. Most studies have an acronym that names them. This is called Crestone. And this is going to sound like a mouthful, but this is the mm -hmm. name of the drug. Sarabantumab. And I'm emphasizing that last syllable, MAB, because M-A-B, when you see it spelled out, that is a suffix at the very end of the drug name. And that tells you it is a monoclonal antibody. Monoclonal antibodies. Yeah, I don't know what that is. It's okay, Hannah. I've got this. Now, monoclonal antibodies are not specific to cancer. In fact, if you've been paying attention at all in the last two years, you know that for a while, monoclonal antibodies were working against COVID. Mm -hmm. Here, this is a monoclonal antibody that's working against cancer. And the reason it works in this specific setting is it inactivates HER3. It's trying to pull up that gas pedal so it's no longer stuck to the floor. It's no longer acting as the driver. Another metaphor here, which I know I'm mixing them, <laughs> is locks and keys. So here we have a drug, an antibody, that is the key to the lock, and the lock is the mutations that we are talking about. And in this Crestone study, which again looked across solid tumors, and this was information that was presented at our biggest meeting. It's called ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncologists. It's like the Super Bowl for <laughs> oncology, but of course, very, very nerdy. The nerd bowl. Yeah, that's right. It was. The, the data were very, very exciting. So what we like to see as oncologists is we like to see tumors not just stabilizing growth, and this drug certainly did that. So 90% of the tumors at the very least stayed the same size. But actually about a third of them shrank. We call that response rate. And in fact, of the shrinkages, two of them were what we call partial. And in two cases, the tumors went all the way away. So that's called a complete response. So that is the Crestone study looking at serabantamab. And again, the key takeaway here is the biomarker, the NRG1 fusion. That is the biomarker that leads to the HER3 overactivation that you can then target with the antibodies. You can see how we have this chain now. And I, I love Stephanie's analogy of the thread off the ball. So the thread off the ball is now something that you can pull on and you can unravel that cancer at the cellular level. And that's what makes this so elegant is, you know, an oncologist like me, if I'm giving you chemotherapy, that to me is relatively inelegant and indiscriminate. I'm just poisoning things that are growing. But this is a much more targeted approach and it really is individualizing care, not just in pancreas cancer, but across solid tumors. All right, gesundheit for all those <laughs> syllables. Uh, Stephanie, your reaction? Yeah, I, I think that this initial success of this potential treatment in a rare cancer, it just shows how the more we can develop targeted treatments for individuals. So we're talking about personalized medicine here where your treatment would be different potentially than mine. So it's important for you as a patient to know as much as you can about your own cancer. The end of one size fits all. Correct. And the next step is then finding the different biomarkers that can set up patients for those specific treatments, the emerging treatments, knowing potentially which clinical trials might be the right fit for them. We're going to 
take a quick break again, and we're going to get back and summarize all of this up in terms of what does it mean to be your own advocate? How do you <laughs> challenge your doctor? Do you want to fire your doctor? What are third, fourth, and fifth opinions? Finding your community and leaning into the resources you never knew you needed. We'll be right back. Offscript Health is proud to present Dear Cancer, a special takeover episode of Out of Patients. To find out more about biomarker testing, visit dearcancer.health slash find out. There you can sign up to receive updates and more information. I want to talk about empowerment, which is a cat poster word. It can mean so many different things. (laughs) We don't want to tell people how to feel about this. It's kind of like use your own metaphor that makes you happy in your space. But Stephanie, empowering patients to be their own advocates. Your take. So it's just, it's all about... Yes, we respect the doctors, Mark. We respect you. You respect him. But respectfully, (laughs) it's as patients, we can push back. We can ask for more. We can get a third opinion or a fourth opinion. And we are empowered as patients to be able to be our own advocates. And when we can't be our own advocate because we're overwhelmed, That's where our community comes in. Right. And Dr. Mark, we alluded to this, I think, in the first segment of the show about the physician's potential hesitancy to trust data coming from a patient. Like 10 years ago, Dr. Google was this stack of (laughs) stuff that just showed up one day in your office. What is that today? And I know you, you can't speak writ large of all oncologists per se, but have you seen trends where there's a receptivity and an empathy to want to have, like you said, this shared decision-making process. So, Matt, honestly, I think it's getting better. I think it is increasingly a two-way street. I think we underestimate, as oncologists, patients' sophistication and savvy at our peril. And you're right. This has sort of evolved out of, you know, sort of a knee-jerk reaction where we rejected Dr. Google. And now we're listening a lot more closely when people come in with questions that they might have honed through online searches. And one thing to realize is that, you know, patients, and I'm stating the obvious now, are the ultimate stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And the other part, to be honest with you, and I'm not saying pity the poor doctor, is most oncologists are treating every type of cancer. So it is actually very reasonable as sort of a litmus test to ask your oncologist, hey, doc, how many people like me or with my type of cancer have you treated? And I think that's a very respectful way of sort of feeling out their familiarity with your type of cancer. Mm -hmm. And as Stephanie said, and this is one of my phrases, you know, if you ask for a second opinion and are rejected by your oncologist, that's a reason. That's a very strong reason to then seek a second opinion. We would call that a red flag. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because any cancer doctor that thinks that they know everything is fooling themselves. And increasingly what's happening in oncology is subspecialization. So I didn't really explain this at the top, but the only thing that I treat is cancer of the gut, and that includes the pancreas. And I'm in a very privileged position. Most oncologists have to, again, treat everything that comes in. And, you know, subspecialists are more likely to have access, usually, to some of the clinical trials that we're talking about. So most oncologists have realized sort of the information problem that we have. It's actually a nice problem, this explosion of knowledge and advancement, but that tends to happen through sort of relying on colleagues who are increasingly studying these different types of cancer. And then the other thing we need to talk about, Matt, which you talked about earlier, is defining these tumors not by where they start, but by shared mutations or biomarkers. Right, and Stephanie, 
he mentioned that this is a shared decision with mm-hmm. the doctor, but if you happen to have support within your own life, family, friends, caregivers, neighbors, they matter too. Yeah, absolutely. The caregivers are such a big part of the patient's experience because they're able to listen in ways that the patient can't always listen because of what was the term you used? Tinnitus? Oh, tinnitus terror. Yes. Yeah. So, so having people around you who are able to when they ask you, what can I do for you? Well, why don't you Google some stuff for me and right. come back with a list of the the last 10 studies on pancreatic cancer or whatever your cancer is. Right. And I'm out of dog food. Right. <laughs> yeah. Go get and, me some dog food, please. And could you pick up a chicken on the way home? Yeah, said I. A nice barbecue chicken. <laughs> yeah. And Stephanie, just on that note, it can be really helpful for you know caregivers and friends to be scribes during doctor's mm-hmm. visits. It is also completely okay, in my opinion, to ask your oncologist, hey, do you mind if I record this? Or do you mind if family and friends call in or FaceTime in? It's actually more common than not these days that when I'm having a visit, either I'm being recorded or we have people on the phone, either audio or video. These are all modern means of communication. We use them in almost every other aspect of our lives. And frankly, as long as the patient is okay inviting sort of an audience, if you will, into the exam room, most doctors are fine with it. In fact, it allows us, not that we mind repeating ourselves, but allows us to relay information without the game of telephone that requires the patient to then translate, if you will, what we say. And to that point too, you mentioned earlier a lot of practices now using these apps where you have secure communication back and forth. And one of the things that I love about that as not as a cancer patient, but just as a patient patient is getting a recap of my visit. Yes. Which I think is great. The other thing I see happening a lot is I see when these messages are written and so often they're written in the middle of the Mm -hmm. night and I can tell it is some burning question that is literally keeping that person awake. And it actually really is gratifying for me to come in the next morning and write them an answer. And that can happen in a manner that we call asynchronous. So not in the confines of my office. But again, when they have time and when I have time, it's actually a really nice form of communication. It's almost like the patient becomes my pen pal. I love all this. Not just because I'm staring at you, and uh, if I didn't, you'd embarrass me right here on the show. (laughs) But I want to talk directly to the listeners, directly into the ears of the people listening. Hopefully, they're still listening (laughs) to the the show at this point. We really hope you are. We hope you find this valuable. And the the reason we care so much about this, if I can channel my inner Gen Xer with a potentially irrelevant pop culture reference, I'm not just the hair club president. I'm also (laughs) a client. (laughs) I think I mentioned this, but I am a 26-year pediatric brain cancer survivor. And what I went through in the 90s was absolute hell. But it was the 90s before cell phones and the internet, maybe AOL floppy disks were lying around. (laughs) Very, very different world. And here we are 26 years later with this incredible progress that we've made. And my God, do I wish... I had had these options in 1996, but we have a huge reveal here for the listeners. And and no, it's it's not an M. Light Shyamalan or Jordan Peele movie, but we have to share with the listeners something very special about Mark, because he's not only an extraordinary oncologist, a humanist, and an empath, but Mark is also... A patient with pancreatic cancer, so... 
My empathy was hard won, Matt, and I'm literally half the man you are. I've only been dealing with my cancer for 13 years, so you're 26 years in. 2009, I found tumors in my pancreas, and just so happens it was the very beginning of my training in oncology. It sort of dovetailed that way, and it's allowed me to see my entire career through that double lens of patient and doctor. And I'm always a patient first. I mean, I live in this body mm-hmm. all the time, and it really has informed my practice a lot. It makes me think because I have to, um, about how these things affect patients and families. And I have learned a lot, you know, to sort of put my money where my mouth is by studying my own tumors under the microscope. I have applied exactly the same biomarker process to my own disease that I'm recommending patients do on this podcast today. And it's also important for the listeners to know that Stephanie and I go back 15, 16 years to the earliest days of cancer advocacy and research. So again, I had cancer. You did not. Good problem to have, by the way. Thank you for not having cancer. (laughs) Thank you. We bring such a perspective. I'd like you to just share briefly the, the, the incredible perspective of the progress we have made in terms of educating people, building communities, and just building a general culture of appreciation and hope. So when I first began working in the cancer community, it was with Livestrong. And I don't know that survivorship was even like a term. There was so much work that we were doing on how do we help patients map the course of their treatment and what to do. It just didn't exist yet. And then there's advocacy, you know, working on legislation and all sorts of different things. And there's the different ways of communicating about different cancers and that it's not been that many years that cancer has emerged as not a dirty word, not an embarrassing thing. People used to not want to talk about. It was a whisper campaign. Yeah. And now people proudly wear whatever color is associated with, you know, their specific geographical cancer. You'll see people who are going through chemo and they are not hiding that anymore. I think that's a beautiful thing because it allows us to be part of that community for them. Because if we don't know that you need help, we can't help you. And so it opens up so many opportunities for caregivers and friends and family and coworkers who always want to do something. Self-servingly, just for the point of venting for a second, I went bald from a cancer treatment. And it's nice to know that not everyone goes bald anymore from cancer treatment. (laughs) So you're welcome, progress. (laughs) So look, listeners, Stephanie, Mark, and I have poured our passions and our hearts into this project, the Dear Cancer Project, for you We've put together all of our resources, all of our best practices, and a complete recap of this episode on our website, dearcancer.health slash find out. Again, questions to ask your doctor, definitions and acronyms, caregiver life hacks, and way more, plus links to Lust Garden and other resources for support and community, and how to be an advocate for change. We named it Find Out because that's what we want you to do. We want you to find out the information that you need so that you, as a patient, as a caregiver, as a friend or a family member, can help. It's so important that you, the listener, take a moment to go to this website. Tell us who you are. Tell us what's important to you. 
And we hope that by listening to this, it will inspire you to take an action you never thought you had in you to challenge the system, ask these questions, push your doctors, find your community, and empower yourself and everyone that's there to support you to determine what's best for you and where you want to be a year from now. So what I would say, Matt, is I want to encourage people to sign up, uh, if they're willing, to be contacted by the Lost Garden Foundation and by Offscript. And you know, find your tribe, join the community. It, you know, As you've said many times, and it's so true, this is the club that we never wanted to join. But we also organize. We organize around cancer and we organize around specific cancers and mutations. There are groups online that are defined by these biomarkers. There's a group, for instance, called the Ross Oneers, <laughs> and Ross One is another mutation. I, I promised I wouldn't use another acronym, and there I did. I'm sorry. I'm a bad oncologist. <laughs> By being part of research, you can have it both ways. You can pay it forward. You can sort of benefit from the legacy of all the patients who contributed to your current treatment, but you can also potentially, potentially benefit from something that is truly cutting edge. And finally, if I can just end with a real appeal, we cannot do this without our patient partners. One phrase I use is they are embodied researchers. I might be a researcher in my lab coat, but they are a researcher in the sense that they are putting themselves into a study. And again, hopefully benefiting from that clinical trial. It's just not something we can necessarily promise to any given person up front. That's the reason we're studying it. Otherwise, it would actually be unethical. So I really hope this was a useful exercise in, in understanding some of the terminology, deciphering biomarkers, for instance, and realizing it's, it's about how do we individualize treatment for any given patient irrespective of where their solid tumor is located in the body. Be the research and pay it forward. Your voice actually does matter. Your story matters. And the best way to help and be heard is to join the communities that support you, lift you up, and guarantee, to the extent possible, you will have the outcome you want, need, and deserve on your terms. Dr. Mark Lewis, Stephanie Elsie, thank you so much for joining me on this very special episode of Out of Patience, Dear Cancer. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you. We've hijacking over, Matt, <laughs> and back over to you. Dr. Mark Lewis, Stephanie Elsie. And don't forget Hannah. Great job, Hannah. Oh, yeah, of course, my daughter. Thank you, Hannah, my amazing little girl. You are a rock star. And thank you all so much for listening to this non-hijacked version of Out of Patience. Stay well, and we'll see you next time. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Dear Cancer senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. It's edited and mixed by Ariel Nachman and Kyle Moore, and our researcher is Emma Gomez. With guests, Stephanie Elsie and Dr. Mark Lewis, and special correspondent, Hannah Greenswig. For more information about biomarker testing, go to dearcancer.health slash find out. And if you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message at 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare stories, and we might just play them on the air in a future episode. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.